Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome back to the Doctor's Kitchen podcast. Today, we're going to be talking about principle three, eat fiber. I'm here with gut health expert, Dr. Megan Rossi, a research associate at King's College London, investigating nutrition-based therapies in gastrointestinal health. She's a registered dietitian with a PhD in the area of gut health from the Faculty of Medicine and Biomedical Sciences at the University of Queensland. In essence, the perfect person to have giving us the lowdown on gut health and what we need to be doing. Listen right to the end because we're going to leave you with some delicious, actionable tips that are covered in the book too. Hey, Megan, how's it going? Hey, Ruthie. It's a pleasure to be here. <laughs> oh, cheers. And it's your birthday today. It is indeed. Happy I know. birthday. No, don't worry. I'm I was going to say, you got a terrible voice. Maybe we we'll stop right <laughs> no, there. We're going to stop there. We're going to stop there. I'm not going to embarrass you or myself. So we're going to jump right into this. What is the deal with gut health? Is it a real thing? Should we be bothered? What is your opinion on that? Rupi, it certainly is a real thing. It is massive. But one thing before I start to get too much into, I guess, the bacteria, which a lot of people associate gut health with, is that gut health actually relates to the functioning of our entire digestive tract. So the tube that delivers food all the way from entry to exit. And it's really important that we remember that because things like our nutrient absorption is really important for our overall health and well-being. But of course, you're right. A lot of people are excited about the trillions of microorganisms living in our large intestine, known as a sciencey word, I like to call it, a gut microbiota. So the microbes that we know that are essentially so, so healthy for us, where do they actually come from? Where did we actually get covered in these microbes from? Well, Rupi, until recently, we actually thought that we were born sterile. So uh-huh. we, we thought that in our mum's tummy, we actually had no bacteria in us. Mm-hmm. And it was a vaginal birth mm-hmm. where we started, you know, to grow these bacteria. But we actually find out that uh, we contain bacteria while we're living in our in our mum's tummy. Wounds, so we yeah. actually have some already to start with, gotcha. which come from our mum. Mm. But of course, very few and very low diversity. Most of our microbes come um, into us when we're um, birthed. So mm-hmm. we're inoculated by our mother's uh, vaginal and fecal microbiota mm-hmm. as well. So that's why there's quite a vast difference in our bacteria if you're born uh, vaginally or via C-section. Gotcha. But that's only for the first uh, couple of months. Yeah. We then, through breast milk, also increase the diversity of our gut bacteria. Mm. And then things like food. You know, there's actually quite a lot of different microorganisms in food, as well as the the prebiotics in certain types of food, which feed Mm. the bacteria and grow. 
And the most important one is really the environment. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, if we grow out in the farm, we're playing with dirt, which is actually really important. Did you and grow up on a farm? I did, I did. <laughs> I certainly say. did. I was playing with yeah. some pretty gross things very yeah. on, early on in life, which I attribute now to my pretty good immune system, I think. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, you know, letting the kids get a little bit dirty is actually mm quite good for the diversity of their gut microbiota. But by the age of around three, we think our microbiota is quite stable. Mm-hmm. And what, you know, is really intriguing is that diet is a number one, you know, influencer of our gut microbiota. Yeah. So what we eat has a huge impact. Yeah, that's amazing. I mean, you, you mentioned the word microbiota. We also heard the, the term microbiome as well. Yeah. Um, what, what actually is the microbiota? Yeah, so the microbiota is the trillions of microorganisms, which includes not just bacteria, although mm. I know a lot of people refer to just the bacteria, but it's other things like parasites, viruses, and even fungi like yeast. And together, they're actually really beneficial. I know a lot of people freak out when yeah, they hear, yeah. oh, my God, a virus. <laughs> but together, they have this synergistic relationship as well as with human cells, and they work together really you know, to help us be yeah. healthy. That's quite a foreign. If we look after them, that if is. If we look after yeah, them, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's quite a foreign subject, isn't it? To think of these microbes, like you said, different types of bacteria, but also viruses, nematodes, et cetera, yeah. um, as helping us, as something that is beneficial for us. What kind of proportion are we talking about? How many, how, what percentage of uh, these microbes actually helping us versus the ones that are pathogenic or detrimental to our health? Yeah, so over 95% of the bacteria that we're aware of are actually really beneficial. That's um, incredible. Yeah, hey. and the ones yeah. living in us, I'd say 99%. Um, and it's not just necessarily about saying that a bacteria is bad or good. Mm. It's about the environment that it's in. And if it's growing too much, then mm. it could become bad. But if it's in a, you know, a smaller ratio, it's actually probably doing us some benefit. Yeah. So it's not so black and white to say that something's bad or good yeah. it's just you know in the right environment um yeah which comes again back to what we feed it yeah right? it totally yeah and it's quite strange again like during medical school i learned a lot about different types of bacteria and how we need to kill them but now i'm learning about okay these types of bacteria can actually serve a benefit to the human host if in the right quantities and they're actually in balance with other ones that's that's quite amazing yeah it is it is such amazing discovery and i think it was in the 19th century when they first thought you know bacteria were completely bad they'd Mm. killed millions of people from you know infections such as anthrax and things like that and they're having vaccines so they're Mm. really trying to kill all the bacteria Mm. and then you know a couple of years after that actually ali ali mechnikov ali mechnikov right yeah yeah yeah. um he's the founder i guess of the probiotic concept kind Uh of started to identify that hey guys maybe some bacteria are actually good we shouldn't Mm. be killing them all yeah and so from then on we started to have this thought that you know what these living organisms in us, Mm. we can actually, you know, utilize them and work with them. So is it really since then that we've known a bit more about the microbiota? Like what's like a a whistle-stop tour in the research and and when did it actually start accelerating? Yeah, so I guess if you look all the way back when we first discovered bacteria, so that was in the 1700s and we found out that there are these microscopic things we can't see in the eye. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then it was, you know, I think it was, Two centuries after that, where pasteurization was, Mm -hmm. you know, become um, a technique that they were using around killing all the bacteria. And that was around when the vaccines came out Mm -hmm. and everything really trying to, you know, stamp out bacteria. Mm. And then the concept of probiotics came 
around fermented milk, particularly around yeah. that having some benefit. Mm. So that was all in the 19th century, you know, before so quite, the 19th quite a long century. time yeah, we've known time. about this. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. But it's only been in the past 10 years or so mm. where we've really started to appreciate just the the size and the potential impact mm. that our gut microbes can really have on us. And that's mm. just because, you know, the technology has developed so that we can now identify the different bacteria living in us. Mm. Um, before that, we couldn't really grow them and we couldn't really identify, you know, what was going on where. Whereas now we've got the special sequencing techniques, mm-hmm. we can identify which bacteria. And what's even more exciting, and this is only more recently yeah. coming out, is their function. Right. Okay. So it's no longer just about what bacteria you have living in you. Mm-hmm. It's about how they actually act. Gotcha. Yeah. Because what we find is that two bacteria, they can be very different, but some of the functionality actually overlaps. Mm-hmm. And what's even more interesting, if you feed them different things, they can then also change their functionality. Okay, um, great. So, yeah. yeah. So the microbiota is uh, the number of different microbes that we find all over our body. Are they concentrated anywhere particular? Yeah, so they're mostly concentrated in our gut, and that's the gut microbiota. But you're right, we've got a skin microbiota, an oral microbiota, vaginal microbiota, so Mm. all these different pockets. Mm. But the majority of the microbes really are living within our gastrointestinal tract. So we've gathered that they're, they're really important for us. What do they actually do? What are the different sorts of functions of these different types of microbes? Like, How do they actually translate to health benefits to us? Gosh, Rupi, they, they're capable of so many things. <laughs> yeah. In fact, when we look at the different genes and their functionality, mm. they actually contain 150 times fold that of human right, genes. Right. So that suggests that their functionality is so incredibly broad. And mm-hmm. we know that you know they're capable of thousands of different metabolic functions. Mm-hmm. Some of the main ones, they can produce you know beneficial hormones and vitamins. They also digest fiber. Mm-hmm. And that's you know the focus of this yeah. one <laughs> in that humans actually don't produce the enzymes needed to break down dietary fiber. So we can't actually, right. you know, digest it. It's yeah. the bacteria yeah. that are the ones that digest it. Yeah. And that's so important for producing really beneficial metabolites, yeah. which are compounds such as short chain fatty acids, some of your listeners may have heard about. Mm-hmm. And they're shown to be very metabolically active and important mm-hmm. and even can, you know, talk to our brain, these metabolites. Gotcha. So that's yeah. kind of where we're starting to appreciate that these microbes, yeah, and their functionality is so broad. Yeah, yeah. I remember when I was growing up, or even actually I think at the start of medical school, I remember thinking of fiber as a type of nutrient that we need to consume to move things along our digestive yeah. tract. And that's pretty much it. Yeah. But this is actually saying to us, or the research is saying to us, they have much, much broader functions in terms of the vitamin production that you were just saying, the short-chain fatty acids. Are they involved in things like immunity as well? Yeah, absolutely. We think that they're really important in kind of priming up our immune system and telling us which things we should be reacting to mm-hmm. and which things we should actually be saying, no, no, that's actually a friendly compound it's okay don't you know release all these really powerful inflammatory markers in fact 70 uh-huh. percent of our immune cells live within our gastrointestinal tract so, right, so our immune system is largely our, concentrated our... there wow okay yeah. right so it's so important our gut health and immune are aligned so we're not just consuming fiber for you know moving things along our digestive tract which is sort of like the mechanical yeah. version of the story here but we're actually consuming it for health benefits that are widespread, massively widespread. Absolutely. So things like affecting your brain, your heart, which aren't actually 
you know, physically connected to your gastrointestinal yeah, tract. Yeah. All these systemic effects are, are just so incredibly broad. Are there associations between different types of bacteria that we find in different humans and um, conditions like asthma or diabetes or, or some things like you were just mentioning, like cardiovascular disease? Yeah. So one of the main things we found out is that people with certain types of chronic diseases, like whether it's something like inflammatory bowel disease or asthma or obesity, actually have a lower diversity of microbes. Right. Mm -hmm. So initially we started to pinpoint, you know, individual different types of bacteria, but we now think that the evidence is really quite conflicting and we shouldn't be focusing on just one type of bacteria because, you know, there are hundreds of thousands. Um, But instead we should be... um, looking at things like the density. So with chronic diseases we versus the healthy population, they've got a, a much smaller diversity, okay. which suggests that, you know, if there's an illness or a pathogen, it's not able to really fight that off as well. So it's gotcha. not as resilient as a healthy gut microbiota, which has got plenty of diversity. Gotcha, yeah. So, so perhaps the future of treatments could be microbiota focused. Is that is that right? Yeah, I am a very um, big believer of that. And in fact, I think our discovery of the gut microbiota is really the missing link between how diet has such an impact on our health and overall well-being mm. is because our food is not just feeding human cells, we're actually feeding microbial cells which have that systemic effect. Right. So having lots of different types of foods, but in particular fiber, is impacting this huge population of different microbes that are having widespread effects, not just moving uh, feces through our digestive system, but actually having effects on hormone release and cardiovascular problems and inflammation. Yeah, absolutely. Inflammation is another one. And your brain activity. There's been some really cool studies (laughs) where they've looked at giving people probiotics Mm. and they've shown that in depression and people with irritable bowel syndrome, if you give someone a specific type of probiotic, uh, it was I think it was for six weeks versus those who had placebo, so the null mm-hmm. um, intervention, mm-hmm. the probiotic group actually had a change in activation of their brain function. Wow. And wow. they did that through scanning their brains uh, in a machine called a functional MRI. Yeah, that you've been in recently, yeah, right? Yeah, I, I have. Sure it was so fun because we're looking to collaborate <laughs> and do more stuff looking at how diet affects our brain. That's incredible. Um, yeah, yeah. So it is, it's such an amazing new area. But yeah. I think we need to come back to remember that this is only something we're just starting to appreciate, like exactly. over the ten, last 10 years, I'd say. Because like you alluded to, like right now, we're sort of at a level where we can sort of figure out what types of bacteria are, are there. But then the function of them is something that we need to figure out more so. The types of products that they create, the proteins and the genes that they actually switch on and off themselves. Like there's so many different things that we need to try and discover before we think about bacteria-focused treatments or microbiome-focused treatments. Is that right? Yeah, that's spot on. And I think that's why we are seeing, you know, a few negative studies is Mm. because people are just thinking that, you know, one individual type of strain of bacteria is Mm. really going to change their mental health or change their heart health and things like that. But Mm. we have to remember that one probiotic capsule, Mm. you know, is putting into like an ocean of bacteria. So the size, it's unlikely. Yeah, Um, yeah, totally. So with our knowledge of the microbiome right now, is there any rationale for testing the microbiome? And are these sorts of tests actually going to be telling us much that we can do anything about? Yeah. So I think outside of research, they aren't 
overly important. For example, a lot of my clients actually do get their um, gut microbiota tested to mm. having a look at the diversity and mm -hmm. the different range, but they do that just out of interest to have a look at what's there. Mm -hmm. And that actually doesn't inform my practice at all. Gotcha. So it uh -huh. doesn't say, okay, look, this is low, you should be having more of this. Gotcha. Instead, I would just look at their diet history yeah. and look at what symptoms they're having and adapt it that way. But, you know, people are really inquisitive around this area, which yeah. I don't blame them. Yeah, yeah. Um, totally, but yeah. at the minute, unfortunately, no, it's not going to impact on, on clinical like, guidelines or, yeah, clinical practice. Exactly. There's a lot that we can actually do just from by taking an accurate history, perhaps examining their diet as well. Yeah. And giving recommendations on the base that before we go into collecting poop samples, right? Yes. Although <laughs> in saying that, my group have just published a paper. It was in Press just yesterday. All right. Where we looked at personalized nutrition and we were able to predict response to different dietary interventions in IBS patients based on baseline fecal samples. Wow. So whether they responded to a probiotic therapy uh -huh. or another type of dietary intervention called a low FODMAP diet. Right, right. Uh -huh. So although we need to move forward and validate um, that methodology, it does suggest our gut bacteria and how they function mm -hmm. really will um paved the way forward for personalized nutrition. Just for our listeners, can you just quickly explain or define what a FODMAP diet is or a low yeah, FODMAP diet? a low FODMAP diet. So a low FODMAP diet is a diet that restricts short-chain fermentable carbohydrates. So these are the types of carbohydrates which humans don't digest very well in our small intestine and instead they make their way into the large bowel where those trillions of microbes live, live and they actually love to rapidly ferment them. Many of the FODMAPs are, are prebiotic, so yeah. they're good for them. Mm. Although people with irritable bowel syndrome are known to be somewhat sensitive to them. Mm. We have to go through a process um, where we restrict the FODMAPs for mm. four weeks and we systematically reintroduce. So don't go on a low FODMAP diet without guidance. It is definitely a short-term thing and we do introduce because they're great. You know, FODMAPs are great for your gut bacteria. So with this new knowledge of the importance of our microbiota, the different types of microbes, fiber becomes a really important topic, right? Absolutely. Yeah, right. it's my favorite nutrient. It's your favorite nutrient. <laughs> it is. <laughs> okay. So how do we spot fiber in the supermarket, on the supermarket shelves? Like where do we get sources from? So fiber comes from plant-based foods. So fruit, veggies, whole grains, nuts, seeds, legumes, they're all fantastic sources of dietary fiber. And I think what's really important about dietary fiber is we don't just get all our fiber from one type of source. We tried to have a wide variety because there's different mm. types of dietary fiber and each type has a different function which will feed different microbes. Gotcha. So diversity is fundamental. That was actually um, my next about. question for right. you. <laughs> yeah. What are the Job different types of fiber? Yeah, but yeah, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so there's, there's many different types of fiber and although, yeah, I think... Ten years ago, they used to break up fiber according to soluble fiber versus insoluble fiber, the mm -hmm. soluble stuff being more around um, helping decrease levels of blood glucose levels mm -hmm. and, and for diabetic control. And insoluble was the stuff that kind of gave you the roughage and kind of helped with your bowel movements. Mm -hmm. But what we know now is that that's probably a little bit ignorant way of mm -hmm. classifying fiber because there's hundreds of different types of fiber gotcha. and they don't fit into those categories. Right, right. So instead we need to look at things like fermentability of the fiber. So do the bacteria actually rapidly ferment it mm -hmm. um, or is it just uh, providing stool bulk which helps you know with passage and mm -hmm. things like that. So mm -hmm. it's it's quite difficult to um, 
classify fibre as such. And instead, I would just tell your listeners to choose fibre sources from a wide range of different foods instead of just getting everything from whole grains or everything from fruit. Yeah. You know, being quite broad with that. Definitely, yeah. I think with these new definitions, it can get really confusing for people. They want to get soluble types of fibre, prebiotic types of fibre, whole sorts of fibre. It gets very, very overwhelming. So having a rainbow diet or variety sources of fibre is really key, right? Yeah, absolutely. And the other important thing with fibre is a lot of these high fibre foods also contain a lot of antioxidants, Mm. particularly polyphenols. And we know that 95% of the polyphenols are actually undigestible by human cells. In fact, they need the bacteria to actually ferment the polyphenols so we can absorb them and have their benefit. So they produce nutrients or phytonutrients in response to being digested by the bacteria. Yeah, so we can then, humans can then absorb these polyphenols and antioxidants and then go and reduce inflammation and all that sort of stuff. But without the bacteria, then we wouldn't be able to digest them and they go out in the poop. Fascinating. (laughs) Absolutely fascinating. Yeah. So um, the extra stuff. There's lots of talk about taking fiber supplements like inulin that's being uh, reported on or you find on pharmaceutical shelves with the supermarket, probiotics, fermented sorts of foods or probiotic supplements. Yeah. Is there any sort of evidence behind them? Should we actually be recommending them to people? Yeah. So I think for the general healthy population, when it comes to probiotics as a supplement, I wouldn't be recommending them. There has been um, a big pooling of the all the studies out there and it suggested that there probably isn't convincing evidence that they're doing a whole lot of good mm-hmm. in saying that they're not doing a whole lot of bad either. Um, so they can only be doing benefit, they're sure. neutral compounds. So mm-hmm. if you want to go and try experiment, mm-hmm. I'd say definitely, you know, feel free to if you can afford it. Mm-hmm. In saying that, I would suggest that if you were going to to take a probiotic for whatever reason you do more of an objective measure of why you're taking it so if you do a little food diary or a symptom diary is it because you're getting symptoms you do that um, at baseline and then you take the supplement for four weeks and then you do that same sort of symptom diary again to see whether it's improved or not or whether you're just wasting your money so try to be more objective about you know why you're taking it there are some conditions in which probiotics may have a benefit, mm-hmm. such as traveler's diarrhea, mm-hmm. which I think around 50% of people get. Yeah. Um, I certainly have had it have when I've gone to third world countries. <laughs> yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. it is not fun. It does no. ruin a holiday. Um, so specific types of bacteria and um, probiotics have shown to reduce your risk quite dramatically. So taking a probiotic throughout the trip is recommended by our guidelines. Yeah, and then other things like IBS, it can slightly reduce your risk of symptoms mm-hmm. by about 20%. But again, you do need to make sure you're choosing the right types of probiotics. Mm-hmm. Great. So given your position in research, what do you think the future of the microbiota and the microbiome holds for us? Like if you could see into a crystal ball, yeah. what sort of things should we be looking out for in the papers? Look, I think... <laughs> that fecal microbial transplants are going to be a big thing. Brilliant. <laughs> and I'm not sure if your, your listeners know what that is, but it's yeah. literally taking fecal samples. We're, we're one... about to get quite icky here. Yeah, sorry, just, you know, just, <laughs> if you if want you to skip dinner. for the next two minutes, go for it. If you're but, a little yeah, bit queasy. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, but you'll know that I love talking about this matter. Yeah. And I think it's important that everyone embraces their poop. It's Absolutely. something we all do. Absolutely, yeah. Checking in with what it looks like mm-hmm. actually can really help, you know, with diagnoses totally, and, and check, yeah. you know, how you overall health is yeah absolutely as Um, as a gp i'm always asking about stool like you know what does it look like in people's responses "Ah, it's normal yeah so what is normal i mean normal is completely varied so you know more about this than me yeah (laughs) absolutely some people think that going 
five times a day, really runny diarrhea stuff is actually normal because mm. that's what they've always done. Mm, exactly. Um, but, you know, little do they know they're malabsorbing nutrients and mm. that's something that, you know, could potentially be impacting their overall health, little totally. quality of life. Yeah. But back to the fecal back micro- to fecal micro- So it's literally <laughs> taking fecal samples from one person and shoving it into another person <laughs> in whichever form. I mean, we don't literally shove. We, 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 we use <laughs> so, some interventional yes, techniques, right. either a it's, colonoscope it's a or more, um, var and nasoscope into the digestive system. But shoving is another way of describing it. And they're, they're also, you know, making it a bit nicer uh-huh. by um, putting them in capsules. Uh-huh. Oh, yes, more yeah, I've heard of these poop, poopsicles, yeah. right? Poopsicles, right. <laughs> but in saying that, I think we're at least five to ten years off that. Mm-hmm. And I certainly don't recommend people get fecal micro while transplants, mm-hmm. although in London there are some private clinics doing this, heard, which yeah. mm. blows my mind. Yeah. The reason I don't recommend it is because we're just discovering you know, all these things about the gut microbiota and mm. who you get the transplant from, they don't necessarily scan them if they've got low levels of anxiety or totally. depression, yeah. which you can actually be transplanting in, to other people. Yeah, it's know, not just a waste evidence. product. It's something yeah. that actually has an effect on every aspect Maybe of life, it, and it, uh, incredibly. Yeah. Um, I've heard about people essentially before going to have a treatment like chemotherapy, for example, in the case of cancer um, patients, where they actually take a sample before treatment and then they keep it almost like a blood transfusion where you expect to have blood loss from a surgery, for example, Mm -hmm. and then you you donate it to yourself, essentially. In the same way they're using fecal transplants like that. Is that something you come across or something that... Yeah, I have heard of that. And Mm. I think that is really innovative and a much safer way to go about it. But Mm. then again, you know, could the gut microbiota have a potential role in, you know, their cancer or yeah. something like that? So are they re-implanting themselves? Not that I think they're necessarily going to be re-implanting themselves, but they're just all these unknown questions, Absolutely. which always makes me a bit cautious. Yeah, um, yeah. But in terms of, you know, ev- evidence, there is some really cool studies underway, so they mm-hmm. haven't actually finished, but they are looking at things like weight loss, okay. um, things like inflammatory bowel disease mm-hmm. and all these really important conditions as a potential treatment. I'm going to give you the doctor's kitchen roundup of things that you can do on a daily basis to help nurture your microbiome for health benefits. That is reflected by what we currently know about the microbiome. And as you you probably heard, there is a lot probably that's going to change over the next couple of years. So as the name of the pod would suggest, fiber and lots of different types is key. Eating things like whole grains are a great way to increase the content of fiber of your meals. Red rice is one of my favorites. Whole grain oats mixed with different nuts and seeds. Legumes, pulses, lentils are brilliant. Preparing them from scratch is something that I teach you to do in the book, but pre-cooked and packaged versions are really convenient ways of building more fiber and flavor into your meals variety of food like we've just heard about the different types of phytochemicals those are chemicals that are produced by plants your microbes thrive on a variety of these different types so mixing up what you tend to eat on a weekly basis would be great different types of colorful vegetables is the goal so a rainbow diet with different types of micronutrients is brilliant Red cabbage, carrot, spring greens, tomatoes, cauliflower, it really doesn't need to be fancy. 
Avoiding antibiotics and trusting your doctor's pragmatic approach to prescribing them is something that is a hot topic across all medical colleges right now. There's a clear recognition that we overprescribe, and there's evidence to suggest that if it's requested by patients, they are more likely to be prescribed by doctors. Also, there are a lot of lifestyle factors that have the potential to affect the microbiome adversely, such as poor sleep and stress. So treating your sleep, for example, as a restorative medicine and managing stress levels by using things like meditation may be effective. And again, I talk a bit more about this in my book as well. I know there's probably something else that you're going to suggest, Megan, but is there anything else that you'd like to add to that list? <laughs> well, there's actually two things. Good. One thing I think is really important is that when we're talking about fiber, mm-hmm. is not just having things like whole um, meal bread. We actually have the whole grain bread. So gotcha. the, the yeah. structure of the fiber is really important. And one really cool study has shown that whole oats versus more processed ground oats actually is much better for us, not only for things like our blood glucose control, mm-hmm. but also things like giving more food to our microbes. So having the less processed types of fiber. So the whole grains or the big oats is really um, my number one recommendation. Big the oats. second one, <laughs> yeah. um, are you talking about fermented food? Yeah. yeah. So Rupi knows that I'm a little obsessed with kombucha and kefir, actually. Uh-huh. I make them both um, at home and I have a little dose every day. Of course. The scientist in me likes to tell everyone that there isn't a lot of scientific evidence to support them. Mm-hmm. However, our ancestors have been having them in their diet for thousands of years mm-hmm. and have associated with a benefit. And for me, I think they actually taste fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> Particularly, a lot of my clients as well find that if they move from their sugary drinks to something like kombucha, it's a little bit easier. Yeah. So, you know, I think it's a great replacement. So I, I'm very pro them. Yeah. I, I, I can see you starting your own brand of kombucha <laughs> or kefir. I can just see it now. Rossi's kombucha, something like that on the shelves or whatever. Um, look out. You should look out. I, yeah, you heard it here first. <laughs> Make sure you subscribe to the Doctor's Kitchen podcast on iTunes, Audioboom, or whatever your favorite podcast player is for notifications so you don't miss new episodes. Give us a five-star rating. They really impact how this information is spread. And you can find Megan at the Gut Health Doc on Twitter. Instagram and her website, Dr. Megan Rossi. That's drmeganrossi.com. Socials, you can tweet us at doctors underscore kitchen. Check out my Instagram, YouTube, and the blog, doctorskitchen.com. You can sign up for more information, events, and of course, don't forget to order a copy of your book. I will personally come to your house and cook you one of the fiber rich recipes. I probably can't do that, but the thought counts. See you next time. I'm in for that one. (laughs) (laughs) See you next time. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. 
Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.